Hello. Hey, John. Hi, Dan Benjamin. How are you, Mr. Podcaster? Yeah, I'm just podcasting. Just, just podcasting. Pod, just podcasting away. How's it going? Hey. How's the launch of your new show going? It's going well. It's going well. We, uh, Omnibus, you know, the, the, the challenge of, of starting a new podcast in this day and age seems to be is we're in that strange period where, of course, podcasting has not reached its upper maximum limit because podcasting is really just starting. The, the biggest network is still NPR. Right. Like none of the big commercial media enterprises have really even entered the space at all. Well, they don't know how. That's why. Yeah. They don't even know what it is. No, they Disney want they just, want to get in there, but they don't they don't understand it. And so what they what they are probably going to try to do eventually is try to get people to be on, you know, their thing, their platform, buy them away, buy their shows, that kind of thing. We'll see that eventually if we're not already starting to see it. Because those companies want to get, you know, the the companies, old school content companies out there, Disney, whoever. You know, and it's the same thing you've seen um, the mostly failed attempts to get like to turn a podcast into a TV show. Mm. Uh, I won't name any names, but the couple times they've tried it have been total flops. I don't know if I ever talked about this publicly, but I um, my my little boy and I, he used to do a podcast and uh when he was about seven or eight years old with me and it was a lot of fun and we had fun. Like I would show him like the cartoons we grew up watching and have him like talk about them and say if they were still good or relevant and other things like that. And he talked about video games and things a seven or eight year old likes to talk about. And it got really good reviews. And a lot of people would tell me that they would listen to it with their kids. And and then I got a, um, uh, an email and a phone call with some people at, one of these cable uh, channels. I won't, I won't say oh. which one. Oh, one of these cable channels. Yeah, you know the ones that you would watch uh-huh. fun things on on TV. And they said, sure. we would like to make a TV show out of your podcast that you do with your son. And I pretty much right away told them, I listened to what they had to say, and I thought about it, and I said no. Because I didn't think it, that there was an idea there, but even besides that, like I wouldn't want to expose my seven, eight-year-old son to the world of television in that way at that age and time, you know, the vagaries of fame. Yeah. Um, I just didn't like the idea of it and said, no, but I mean, I, I really feel like that was just the initial, as you would say, opening salvo Mm -hmm. of those kinds of companies trying to figure out what, what can we do with podcasts? There's something here. We need to do something. Uh, how do we do it? Well, we'll just, we'll find some people who do it. We'll make them do it for us. Yeah. Right. Or turn it into something we understand, which is yeah. a TV show. Right. Turn it into, to the, the space, force it, shoehorn it into what we're comfortable doing. Yeah. And I'm sure that we have yet to see, for instance, like the Jay Z show where Jay Z has a podcast. I mean, you know, that that's all coming too. but even so it does feel 
from within, from those of us who are in the podcasting sphere for a long time now, you, for instance, early, early podcast pioneer. Right, yes. Me, me a later, later Later, early podcast pioneer, right. Uh, But, you know, and to all of our listeners who are early adopters, uh, the space feels very crowded, particularly crowded with podcasts where, um, you know, people are explaining interesting facts from history. There are, there are no shortage of those, a lot of different formats. Um, and Ken and I thought long and hard about like, what kind of podcast do we want to do? I mean, we both just like this stuff. It's not a, um, it's not a gimmick for us. We, this is what we spend our time sitting around talking about with each other when we go get tacos. And so, so we're very proud of it. You know, like we love doing the show, but it is entering into a space where it's like, oh, well, the dollop does that too, except they're comedians and stuff you should have learned in history class does it except they're women. And, you know, there are a lot of different approaches to it. And, um, so it's hard to know, you know, in the long run, it's hard to know like how you compete for uh, the limited amount of time that people have to sit and listen to interesting facts. Right. And that's, well, it's not just interesting facts. It's any, anything at all listening to anything because, right. you know, this show that we're recording right now competes with Omnibus because people only have a limited amount of time to listen to stuff and they might, they might have their the time that they spend on their commute in the morning, in the afternoon, if they even have a commute and they might have the time while they're jogging or walking their dog or making dinner. And like, that might be the only time that they have to listen to anything. And, yeah. you know, not that many years ago, I remember when people were begging for there to be more good podcasts because there weren't, yeah. there weren't that many. And if you happen to have a podcast at all, chances are people were listening to it just because there wasn't anything else. Yeah, And the few shows that were actually really good, people loved them and they said, we want more like this. Well, now there are a lot more like this. There are a <laughs> lot of really good shows, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. and it's, it's now become really hard for people to find out not what shows are out there, but to figure out which shows they should be listening to. Because like you say, there, there might be five, there might be 50, I don't know, but there might be a, a lot of shows in the same space, like you're saying. And now it comes down to, well, do, do I want to hear John and Ken talk about it? Or do I want to hear the dollop people talk about it? Or do I want to hear some of the other people that are talking about it, talking about it? And, and now they have that choice, but what if you like all of them? Then now they're in this situation where they need to like cut a show, you know, like, well, I want to hear this new thing that John does, but it's 45 minutes twice a week. Yeah. So what do I do? Do I do I listen to it? Do I cut one other show? Do I cut two other shows? Well, I think in the as the podcasting sphere expands, the whole concept of the expansion of it is not that we keep um, poaching the same fifty thousand listeners from one another. Right. We just need more but, listeners in yeah, general in you, the world. You get a podcast like this, and 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 I think that how stuff works is conscious of the fact that that Ken, um, 
Ken Jennings has a broad, his name has a, a wide appeal. His uh, persona has a wide appeal and an appeal with a lot of people who have never listened to a podcast. And so the idea of launching a show where um, Ken is one of the hosts is an opportunity, I think, to bring more outside people into the, into this medium. Because, I mean, I travel with Ken all the time and he is still widely recognized and beloved. Every person over the age of 55 knows who he is. And surprisingly, a lot of young people do too, because those shows are all in reruns, I right, guess. Right. Um, but you know, he's television famous and, and this is a thing I learned, um, probably 10 years ago when I met Zoe Deschanel, she was still a, she was still like trying to be an indie film person. I mean, she's not trying to be, she was an indie film person and she was from our perspective as members of that, of that culture, she was like a real indie film, um, star and, and she was like a, she personified a kind of style of, of indie filmmaking mm -hmm. and, and and the question was, you know, when is she going to have her Amelie or when is she going to have her film that, right. you know, like when Jason Schwartzman was in Rushmore, after that, he was just a different thing. Before that, he was nobody. He was a teenager. But after that, he was like an institution. And so he had been in a lot of different films, but had never really had like this thing that just sort of that we all knew that we all knew she could do. And then she got that television show, New Girl. And at the time, I was like, I still believed that television was a demotion from film. Right. Which is a conceit that we had all through the 70s and 80s and 90s, I think. Like, right. oh, absolutely. Like, like, why would you do television if you could do movies or if you, ha if you were a movie actor? And then now you're on like a TV show. It's like, oh, they've they've fallen from grace now. What yeah. what's happened in that? Oh, that sucks. They couldn't they couldn't get work, so they had to slum it over in TV. Yeah, well, and all those TV actors like like John Ritter, who <laughs> yeah, you know, when John Ritter appeared in a film when he was in Sling Blade, it was like whoa, whoa stunt casting, right? They got they got John Ritter from Three's Company to be in this cool movie well you know john ritter is massive and sling blade was a tiny little art project um but but zoe was a person that i knew and i watched as she joined that television show and it a absolutely changed her life like she was so much more of a media person so much, I guess what I'm saying is so much bigger. She was such a much bigger star after she was on television because your, your audience is huge in television and you're broadcasting right into people's living rooms. You're there every single week. You are so much of a, of a more familiar presence to people than, you know, than Ryan Gosling in Blade Runner two. Mm -hmm. Um, and it, and it it totally turned it totally flipped on its head my sense of like film versus TV and that was even kind of before this 
14th renaissance of television that right. we're going through now where every <laughs> every television show is like cinematic and full of gratuitous violence and right. you know so Ken was on Jeopardy for 75 episodes he won 75 times rather right which means that for the period of that three quarters of a year um he was in everybody's living rooms but also that he was the re you know he was responsible for an enormous bump in viewership of jeopardy as he as his streak continued now more how long more how more long people, were, were these streaks going on for because i don't i don't watch regular tv and i've i haven't watched jeopardy really since i was a kid right so like since you were a Sitting on your grandmother's knee, which That's, is where most people watch Jeopardy. Yeah, and and like, I re, you know I know when someone wins, if I understand it, they like they would win Monday night, and then they'd continue to Tuesday night, right? And then they'd continue to win. And wouldn't isn't that how how it works? Well, um, you know, Dan, I don't have a TV, but let me tell you <laughs> a little bit of what I know. <laughs> like, for instance, I'm not sure whether I don't think Jeopardy airs every day of the week right it's not on like monday it was on every day monday through friday well maybe in reruns but is it is the show itself on every day i, I have no was, idea i'm gonna look this up while you talk all right um a maybe little known fact is that until the 2000s in the long, long run of Jeopardy, if you won five uh, straight contests, so it, what you're saying is true. You win, and then the following day you're on the show again, and the other two contestants are not. Here's a here's a so, John. The current version, uh, a daily syndicated show, daily produced wow. by Sony Pictures Television, premiered on September 10, 1984. So wow. since 1984, it's been daily. Daily show. That's, That's what it says. That's pretty impressive. Uh, well, so I understand. So from 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 Ken, I understand a few things. One is that when you go to record an episode of Jeopardy, what you do is you go down and you record, I think, five in a day. Oh, wow. So that's the whole week in one day. I think so. That's nuts. I mean, you take you take down um, you take down a whole bunch of of. Uh, of clothes so that in between episodes, if you win and if you stick around, you change your, change your clothes and then pretend that tomorrow is a new day. Um, so, Oh, and also you record a long time before the show's air. So if you are going down to jeopardy, you're not allowed to tell people that you're doing it mm. and you can be on a winning streak as Ken was for, several months and you can't tell anyone in your life what you're doing. So in Ken's case, he, he kept taking time off from work <clears throat> and I think his boss knew what was happening, but none of his coworkers did. And it's like, well, sorry, got to go down to, you know, got to go on this business trip again for weeks and weeks. He had to do this mm -hmm. Pre pretend to everybody that he was just that, you know, he couldn't even say that he was on the show. So they record five shows in a, in a day or something. And, and, uh, 
but but prior to this, prior just just before Ken was on the show, I mean, I think within a year before, they changed the rules. And the rules prior were that if you won five, if you did a, a streak of five, then you were retired. You won a car or they gave you a trophy. And maybe it was that if they record five shows in a day, if you made it through every show in a day, you were the you were the champion of the day, and that was as high as you could go in Jeopardy. But they changed the rules to say, well, if you can keep going, then then you can keep going. And for a little while after they changed the rules, it just kind of puttered along as Jeopardy normally does. Somebody won the show three times and then gets bounced, you know, like right. just sort of normal uh, churn. And then here comes Ken and he wins all five shows and then he wins five more. And I think the people that were running Jeopardy were like, oh, okay, well, we've got one now that's, you know, he won 10. Amazing. (laughs) And then he won 15 and then he won 20. And none of the shows had aired yet. So it was all happening in this weird Jeopardy bubble where – the, the the producers of the show were like, is this bad? Did we do something terrible? We've opened it up now and this guy has won 20 shows. Are people going to be furious? Like, are people going to stop watching the show? Have we betrayed the whole concept of it? And so then Ken won 30 shows. And I think listening to him describe it, they were on pins and needles. <laughs> like, um, and I think you can see Alex Trebek is sort of like, oh, Ken is back. You know, that there wasn't a lot of – it was confusing, I think, for them. Yeah, because, I mean, um, the show has been going for decades and nothing like this has ever happened. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and I think that people uh, who – who watched the show mostly didn't know about this five episode rule that had been in place for decades. So when the show started to air, there's this embargo on information. So it comes out and people are just watching it as they normally do. Oh, this guy won five. Oh, wow. He won 10. Wow. No one's ever won 10. And Jeopardy's not explaining. Oh, right. we changed the rules. So the so by the time he'd won ten shows, it was like already an event. Well, so Ken is still he's going to work every day at his computer programming job. But now it's on TV and now he's won ten ten shows. But he's still in in alternate timeline, reality timeline, he's still winning. And he still is leaving work and flying down to be on Jeopardy. And this never happens before, right? Because by the time your shows air, it's already been months since right. you recorded. Them. Right. But so the people at his work at least get this inkling of like, wait, you're you recorded these how long ago? You're still going down there for things? So I think there was a there was a period where he, um, where he was in that weird space of like he's, he's winning on TV, but he's also still winning uh, 
in the backstory, in the, in the upside down. Well, by the time he'd won 20 shows, by the time he'd won 30 shows, like the degree to which this was unprecedented, you know, was exponential. And it started to develop, it started to be very exciting within the whole culture because although we don't all watch Jeopardy, I think we all have watched Jeopardy. Right. At some point in our lives. And a lot of people have gone through periods where they watch Jeopardy pretty regularly. You know, it, all you have to do is be sick in bed for five days and you're going to find <laughs> Jeopardy. <laughs> you almost can't help it. You know, and and it's a, a lot of the stuff from Jeopardy is just in our in our broader culture. So when when it came out like, oh, this guy is winning, winning, winning. Nobody had to be told what Jeopardy was and and people started tuning in. People started being interested in it. And Ken is a very interesting mix of a guy that when you first look at him, you think like, oh, it's just like American Joe. He's clean cut. Boy, he's the boy next like, door. Yeah, he's really like a boy next door sort of of uh, like American white guy. Uh, but he also has a he has a real kind of wry charm. You know, he's not um, he's not unintelligent, you know, he, he has a kind of, he's a little sassy in a way that still is, um, that still conveys boy next doorness, right? He's not like this guy that won several, um, jeopardies recently who had a big beard and was a Brooklyn tavern guy and everybody was excited about him. He was definitely like, I'm milking it. <laughs> uh, but, but Ken was just there just sort of methodically, ticking people off, you know, knocking, knocking them down. And anyway, so by the time he had won 50 shows, the Jeopardy people had come around because they realized that they just, they'd effectively doubled their viewership. People were tuning in at, at in record numbers. And so they no longer felt like they'd made a, a terrible error. Right. Although they, they did, I think at, at the t by the point he'd won 50 times, there was a question about like, oh, is this all it took? Like one smart guy and he's just undefeated now forever? Like how many times do we let him win before somebody has to kill him? <laughs> right. But it's really implausible, right, that somebody could do it because there are a lot of smart people. He's just a person. He's not somebody that can just sit and like destroy worlds. <laughs> There's got to be somebody that's faster on the draw and he's got to slip up, right? Well, I, so I don't know if you remember, but during the last couple of weeks of his reign, it was in the newspaper every day. Hmm. Like, he did it again. 62 episodes. You know, it was, a, it was a media event. People were talking about it around the water cooler. When I say I'm doing a podcast with Ken Jennings – Half the time people know who it is. The half of the time that they that they kind of tip their head and go, Ken Jennings. I go, the Jeopardy guy. And everybody, 100% everybody knows who that is. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. The guy who won all the times. We would like to thank Brooklyn and betting. We're talking about betting. Betting. I've just recently discovered this betting and it is awesome. I have these sheets on my bed. Actually, they're on my bed right now. And we love these. 
you wouldn't think that the betting that you have would make a big difference. You'd say, well, it's more about the mattress or it's more about the pillow. I'm sorry. I'm here to tell you today that it does make a big difference. And these sheets from Brooklinen are awesome. And they're just in time for the holiday gifting season. You want to get somebody something. You're like, I don't know what to get them. You know what you can do? You can improve their sleep. You can improve their relaxation. And in turn, you will be making them better people because they'll be feeling better. They'll be sleeping better. And that's what you can do for them in the holiday season. I'm telling you. Now, here's the thing. Most high-end betting, it's marked up by more than 300% by the time it reaches the store. And Brooklinen says, this is nonsense. Regular people should be able to afford really, really great betting. You shouldn't have to spend that kind of money. They make quality luxury sheets and bedding accessible to everyone. And like I said, this is a great thing to give to somebody. It was founded back in 2014. Uh, husband and wife were traveling around and they found this like great bedding and they said, wow, why don't our sheets at home feel this good? And they found out that's because it costs like a million dollars. And they said, there has to be a better way. And they set out to start a company, which they did to bring these great sheets to regular people at affordable prices. And I love these Brooklinen sheets and you can try them. And there's like no risk to this because they give you a 60 night satisfaction guarantee. That's like two months. You get to try these out risk-free and see if you like them. They've got sheets, they've got comforters, they've got a lifetime warranty on all that stuff. There's no reason not to give them a try. There's no reason not to share them with your uh, with your friends, your family. You're going to get $20 off and free shipping when you use the, the promo code ROADWORK at brooklinen.com. I'll spell it B-R-O-O-K-L-I-N-E-N.com. Brooklinen.com. Use the code road, ROADWORK and you'll get $20 off and free shipping. Brooklinen, the best sheets ever. So eventually he was defeated in just some sort of inglorious way. A smart woman came on and it bet some amount of daily double and Ken got the question wrong and he was out. It says uh, his 75 matches took place over a span of 182 calendar days. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Pretty impressive. Like yeah. half a year he yeah. was down there. <laughs> that's, that's a lot of time. It is. And – at the time, he was the winningest. He was the he had won more money on quiz shows than any person in history. He was the winningest. But the question of whether or not it was unfair to all of the past victors who didn't get a chance to go past five shows was a kind of, not exactly an asterisk, but a little bit of an asterisk next to his record. And so Jeopardy did, they tried to address this by having a series of tournaments of champions. I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. They invited past five time winners to compete against one another in a, in a tournament of champions. And there was a guy whose name I don't know, but you are certainly probably already looking him up. There was a guy who came on the show and wa- and beat Ken. And it's impressive because <clears throat> in these tournaments of champions where all the old all the old victors came on, Ken still beat them all. 
Brad Rutter, the, I think, is the guy's the name. The exception of Brad Rutter. Mm-hmm. And they competed head-to-head several times, Ken and Brad. And I think, you know, Ken be- beat Brad, but Brad beat Ken. And he beat him in a couple of big events. And one of them was... <clears throat> One of them was a was something where the the first prize was a million dollars, and in the in the in the course of a couple of these big big tournaments, in which Ken came in second place, ne- never never below second place in any Jeopardy tournament, and often in first. But during that period, Brad Rutter. <clears throat> ended up winning enough money in these in these enormous million dollar shows that he became the winningest the um the richest quiz show contestant in history. Oh, he wow. ended up ga- making so much money in these in these few appearances that he now holds that record. So Ken is number 2 in the in the money game. Uh, but it seems like a pretty hard record to beat the um, the streak, the seventy five episodes. Yeah, streak. has anyone pretty ever has anyone ever had seventy four wins no. since him? No, no, I don't know how. Do you many think if they did today <clears throat> that because when was he? When was he? This happening? Two thousand three, maybe. Okay, two thousand four. Do you like think that? it would have the same degree of attention? today if it was happening right now i mean the this person i'm talking about uh this this, um brooklyn bartender i don't know how many he won but i don't think it was that many Mm -hmm. and um and he had a little bit of on-camera pizzazz and he was it was uh, a um People were talking about it, yeah, and and uh, talking about it in the same kind of way. And there was a lot of uh, there was a lot of talk along the lines of, uh, "Is this the is this the the one? Can he go the distance?" <laughs> it's like, no, can't really go. That's quite a distance. One hundred and eighty calendar days. That's a lot of. That's a lot of winning Jeopardy. And I get asked, you know, why don't I, why haven't I ever tried out or done that? Yeah, I would that? think you'd and be pretty good at it. I'd be good at it, but I I don't think I would enjoy it. That style of competition, I don't, I wouldn't like it. Yeah, but like if you won a million bucks, then do you have to like it? I think you have to like it in order to win a million bucks. You know, I think that I would... I'm not. I'm not 100 percent sure that I'm that con- that I'm that that I'm that fast. You know, I know the answer, but I'm not like hit the buzzer before the other person and have the word right on my tongue. I'm. You'll you'll hear me as I'm trying to think of things and as I'm filling in ideas. It's a slow process for me, and I'm like, oh, and then this, and then that. I mean, I, I uh, somebody posted a picture of Serge Gainsbourg the other day and his longtime muse 
And I sat and looked at the picture, and at first I saw her picture, and I said, who's that girl? And then I said, oh, right, that's Serge Gainsbourg. So that must be that girl that was his lady who kind of um, – there are a lot of famous pictures of them together and – Oh, right. She was kind of his muse. And um, he was very popular with a lot of women. But her name was like Jane. Yeah, J -J Jane. And then I'm looking, I looked at the picture a little bit longer and I was like, Jane Birkin. Jane Birkin. Yeah, that's Ooh. Jane Birkin. And it, you know, it was like two minutes of sitting. I wasn't competing against anybody. Nobody was asking me. I was just, and it, but, but I went from looking at this picture where I had no recognition of the people where I was like, Oh, what is this? Oh, that's searching. Oh, huh. And then I knew her name. It was in me somewhere. And what Ken has, and what a lot of those people have is like this ability to be like, who is Jane Birkin? And I just, just not, uh, that's not the way my synapses fire. Right. And I think I would be, I think on a show like that, I would be so, I would just be covered in shame because I do know, I, you know, as soon as somebody was like, who's Jane Birkin? I'd be like, right, right, right. Uh, you know, and when I'm, when somebody's got Jeopardy on in a room, I'll sit and lob answers at it all afternoon. I mean, that's fun to do, mm -hmm. but it's different from being on the show. Sure, you're just sitting there in the in somebody's kitchen, um, like knowing all the answers. That's really fun. But sitting up there with your hand on the buzzer, I'm I'm not sure that I could have uh, that I could could have well that I would make it at all. It just doesn't feel like what I would be good at. So, well, so my consolation prize is that I get to do effectively a long-form trivia show with Ken Jennings. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, neither of us are comedians, although we're fun to talk to, and it's fun to talk to him, and he is funny, and I'm funny, but we're not trying to be, we're not doing it to be funny, right? We're not, it's not a comedy show. Um, you just, you can't help it that you guys may be funny in the process. Yeah. It's like this show or, or like Roderick on the line. I mean, you know, Merlin and I aren't comedians, but we have, we make each other laugh. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, you and I deal with a lot of funny stuff, but serious stuff. Mm -hmm. So, <clears throat> but there are, there are a lot of people in podcasting because it was a popular place for comedians to go. It, it befits um, the talents of certain kinds of comedians, not all comedians. Uh, so, you know, history is, is something that you can be funny about for sure. But I don't think, I don't think Ken and I approach history from the standpoint of like, Oh my God, history. So funny. Oh, people in the past, weren't they crazy? Right. Imagine what it used to be like. People used to think this. Ha! Like, that's not really our take on it. 
But we'll see. I mean, right? Today was the today we released our fifth episode of Omnibus. Mm-hmm. Apparently, although the show only debuted a week ago, we you were had, you had recorded some, <laughs> had them in the can, ready to go, and then released we them. Had them in the can, Netflix yep. style. And our first uh, our first week, we were well as as far as. Uh, on Tuesday of this week, we were number 13 on the iTunes, um, the, the like culture chart, and number 43 overall, I guess, discounting the ESPN shows. Yeah, those are I think if you, just there to <laughs> screw everyone else up. Yeah, I think if you look at the uh, if you look at the actual raw data of podcasting, the the top 100 shows are all ESPN probably recaps. Yeah. So I think the I, there are iTunes charts where they're just like, okay, all right, we get it. Like sports, sports wins, but if you take sports out, here are the top shows. Uh, and so we were in the top 50. Which is exciting, but you don't know, you know, nobody knows, I don't think. I don't know if 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 you debut in the top fifty and then you remain in the top fifty forever. Probably not. I probably not. probably you probably ebb and flow, right? Yeah. Um but it's um as someone who has never sold more than thirty five thousand records. I keep saying that, but I don't know. Maybe one of my Barsook Records has sold up to 40,000 copies by now. I'm not sure. Somebody listening to this program probably has access to SoundScan and they can report back. But it's 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 interesting to me to be um the thing about podcasting is it's not like getting it's not like being on New Girl. It's never going to make me America's indie darling. But it is really interesting to be part of a property that um that's just that kind of that's a that's one scale different than anything I've done. Right. We'll see. We'll see if it's. Um, I mean, I, I don't have to see the important part, which is, do I like doing it? Is it sustainable? I think that I do like doing it, and it is sustainable. So we don't have to see whether it's going to make it or not. Um, but we'll just see what happens you know what it leads to right our next sponsor is away you know what this is maybe also the best suitcase i've uh, i've ever used and they this is not in the read they're not this is not in the notes they can't pay me to say that they can pay me to talk about like what it's made out of and stuff but i really genuinely love this suitcase i've traveled with it a number of times and it has come in so handy. Just the fact that th- these are the ones you've probably heard about that have the little charge uh, charger built in. So it's a USB charger. You can charge your iPhone up to five times with one charge uh, in, in the suitcase. So if you're sitting there on a layover or your flight gets canceled like mine did, you don't have to worry. Oh, man, what am I going to do? I'm going to have to like run through the airport into some other terminal and maybe I can score one of those outlets and just sit on the ground next to it. No, those days are over. But it's more than just about having a built-in charger. It's got so much. They're all made with premium German polycarbonate. That means it's very lightweight. It bends and never breaks. 
The interior has their own patent pending compression system. So if you're like me and you want to fit everything in there, this this compresses it down and makes it possible for you to take it everywhere. They've got the 360 degree spinner wheels so that you can be uh, like you can have the, the suitcase upright. So if you're walking or wa- or standing in line or whatever, you don't have to keep tipping the thing back to ca- to drag it behind you. You can just walk through the airport or walk through the hotel with the thing uh, upright. I love that. It's got a TSA approved combination lock that's built into the top of the bag. So you don't have to, oh, where's a separate, uh, where's a separate lock and oh, what happened to it? No, it's just built in. TSA approved means if they need to get into it, they can get into it. It even comes with a removable, washable laundry bag that integrates into the suitcase. You can keep your dirty clothes separate from your clean clothes. They thought of everything. Both sizes of carry-on can charge all cell phones, tablets, e-readers, and anything else that's powered through a USB cord. And there are lots of different sizes to these. The carry-on, the bigger carry-on, I have the carry-on size. The carry-on, the bigger carry-on, the medium, and the large for extended stays. And they even have a kid's carry-on now for, uh, for your kids who should be able to travel just as easily as you. Lifetime warranty, if anything breaks, they fix it or replace it for life. And the best part, talk to you about risk-free, a 100-day trial. They want you to live with it, travel with it. Like This isn't 100 days for it to sit in your closet. This is 100 days for you to take it on the road. And if you don't like it, return it. You get a full refund, no questions asked. And they now have free shipping on any way order within the contiguous United States. And they're compliant with all major U.S. airlines. Like they thought of everything. So you're going to get $20 off a suitcase if you go to awaytravel.com slash roadwork. Again, it's awaytravel.com slash roadwork. And you use the promo code roadwork when you're checking out. You'll get 20 bucks off a suitcase. Not bad. And you still get 100 nights to 100 days to figure out if you like it. So go check it out. Thanks very much to Away Travel. Right now, I have a pretty comfortable. I have a pretty comfortable little setup. I mean, since 1999, <clears throat> since the spring of 1999, I have not had a regular weekly routine as much as I have right now. In, 19, in the spring of 1999, when I worked my last job, uh, then I had a there was a calendar in the back of Steve's Broadway news Mm -hmm. that it was like my shifts. And I think I had Wednesday from noon to six Thursday from six to midnight Sunday from six to midnight Monday from 7 AM to noon, which was my least favorite day of the week. And, you know, I worked four days a week, five days, maybe Mm -hmm. sometimes if I was covering a shift four days a week. And then I had band practice on Tuesdays and Thursday nights or, or one of those nights, I guess I, there was band practice. I had two nights where I worked till midnight. There were two nights where I had band practice. Um, and then that was my schedule, right? I like, I knew on each day of the week, what I was going to do. Well, since I left Steve's Broadway news, the only schedule I've had has been when somebody sent me a, a tour routing that said on Monday, you'll be in Ames, Iowa on Tuesday, you'll be in Lincoln, Nebraska. Um, 
And that's a shitty drive, by the way. Oh, yeah. From Ames to Lincoln to do in one day. But a tour routing would tell me where I was going to be. And definitely my calendar fills up with things that I have to go do. But then I started doing that show with Merlin and it meant that one day a week I had to be somewhere at 10 in the morning to be on the show. Right. Which and is very, very doing, early for you. Yeah. Ugh. I started doing this show with you and then I had two things a week to do. But now I have four podcasts and one of them is still unreleased, has not yet debuted when that's going to be coming out in January. And I have a schedule. I wake up every day. I have a show to do. Three of the shows I do at 10 in the morning and this one because because of your lunch needs, I do at noon every day. So three shows at 10 and one show at noon. And then I have a thing that I, you know, then I have things with my daughter that are also on my calendar. And it's like I have a, it's like I have a job. You have like a schedule of things that you need now need to do. Yeah. I can't just like fuck off. I have to do, I have to get up in the morning and it's good, but it's, it's, um, it's not taking a, a, any adjustment because I, I like eased into it for so long. Uh-huh. I've been podcasting with you and Merlin for a long time and, and, and I know I like it. It's not like adding another podcast was really starting a new job. It's just expanding the number of times I sit here at this desk in front of this microphone. But it's also strange. It's strange to have, to have uh, work to do in, in that way and like alarm clocky work, you know, ding, 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 wake up. And I, I think I'm enjoying it. And I think it's, I think it comports with being 50 years old, mm-hmm. you know, it's not, it's, um, but, and I guess the adjustment isn't for the work, the adjustment or isn't to the work. The adjustment is going to be to the other stuff that goes along with having a regular life. Like I, I've talked before about needing to figure out how to go to sleep at night. And that still is a, is a bugbear for me. I was, <clears throat> I was awake at five o'clock in the morning last night. Just up, up doing your stuff. Just putta, 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 putta. And I look at the clock and I'm like, it's 5 a.m. Like, even though you don't have to do your show with Dan until noon, you, you have to get up some number of minutes before noon. <laughs> right. It might only be four minutes. You might sleep till 1156. But even if you go to sleep right this instant and you wake up one minute before you talk to Dan, it's, it's not eight hours of sleep. You've stayed up till five. Why? So I have to, I, I just have to bring the other things that go along with, with, um, having a, having a daily routine. I, I have to get them now figured out, you know, how to get exercise, how to, I just, I, uh, it's, it's such a, I, so I go to, I go to a psychiatrist, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. I'm, I was in his office the other day and he asked me that age old question. Like, well, are you happy? Like what, 
And I'm like, I've been seeing you for a year and this is the first time you've thought to ask me if I'm happy. <laughs> he's like, he's like, well, I mean, you know, we've been talking about all this other stuff. It, you know, it never came up. And I'm like, uh-huh. All right. Well, uh, it still is a very confusing question to me. Like I'm, uh, I, it's the type of thing that, that over the years, I think I had a pad answer for. What would you say? I would say that's a very confusing question, <laughs> but, but it was kind of a pat answer in the sense that it, it was meant to just kind of push people off the question. Like, right. You know, leave me alone. Like as, People have pat answers for things, and a lot of times it's like, "Are you happy?" And the answer could be anything in the family of like, "Well, what's happy mean?" Or "Happy that a uh, happy it's time for lunch," or you know, just the kind of dumb people, <laughs> dumb stuff people say right. when they don't want to address a question. Right. But I legitimately am confused by what people mean when they say happy, and as soon as you throw that. Like as soon as you say, what is that that you're talking about when you say happy? And then they go to that next tier of words like content or um, like without anxiety or, you know, there's this immediate problem of describing what they mean by happy. There just aren't a ton of next tier words or phrases to get exactly to the question or exactly to like, well, what I mean is synonym for happy. Uh, that isn't kind of as meaningless as the word happy seems to be. But, but so many people have an answer for that question. Are you happy? Yeah. Are you happy? No. And I'm like, how can, well, I mean, don't, don't you have a sense of that? No, I have no idea what that is. I Do you, don't know what it is. Is that because you don't feel happiness or because you don't understand the, how, I mean, how can you not quantify it? <clears throat> I mean, it's a, you felt, it's you a felt happiness before. I'm not sure. You, I think you would know. I don't know. I don't know if you would know. I think you would know if you've ever felt happy. I mean, like really? when you, when you, yes, when you see your little girl do something, do you feel joy? Do you feel happiness about that? I mean, I feel a, I feel a very complicated set of feelings and they're not and every single beautiful moment in my life is also colored by an awareness that, that the, that the, the reaper is standing over our shoulders and that, um, you know, that every next day, some, some awful blood wave could happen to any of us at any time. Right. I mean, we talked, know, friend, we talked about this off, off the air at the time that we were first starting this show. And mm-hmm. I think, um, something had happened with my audio equipment and I wasn't able to record for some reason, or I ha- I was late which doesn't happen a lot, but it, it was enough that it, I think we missed recording that day. And I apologized to you while we were talking and I said, I, I hope, I hope you're not upset. And you said something along those lines, like, um, hang on. 
Hang on. Sorry, notes? I had to. We had a, a an emergency situation. I had to prevent oh. a fire. Um, oh. and I said, and I think you said something like, "There's no way." for me to answer that question because if I were to tap into my, I'm never, I think you said something like I'm never upset because if I were to ever access that feeling or that emotion, uh, that all hell, I'm paraphrasing all hell would break loose within my psyche. And I would have, a I would melt down as a human being. <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm paraphrasing. I'm paraphrasing, but you said something <laughs> like that. I mean, I'm not upset about that type of thing. If you're late, you're late. If I'm late, I mean, I'm, I know that being late to things is, is, a, is important to people, that there right. are lots and lots of people that do not like A, to be late, or B, for other people to be late. <clears throat> I have no feeling about it if you're late. Um, you know, if we miss the train right. or something because you're late, but that whole business of like, well, being late is disrespectful. I don't feel disrespected when people are late. Um, there are, you know, if I like go to a great trouble to be somewhere and that person doesn't show up, I'm a little bit like, meh. <laughs> but um, I, it, it's it's it seems like a like color blindness. You wouldn't know that you were colorblind unless you were always kind of confronted with the fact that other people were talking about how, you know, how important the distinction between green and blue were and you couldn't tell them apart. You wouldn't know. Right. And I think there are a lot of people that are colorblind for years and years and years and don't figure it out until they're in the middle of their life because it's just never, that big of a deal, right? There was, there wasn't a distinction between green and blue in the language for until modern times because people in the past just lumped them together as, right. a, as shades of a, of the same thing. But I mean, I think it stands to reason that every human being is, is capable of feeling the full range of human emotion. I don't know. I do not know if that's true. Like, I mean, is it possible, are, like, like if, you know, it, you can, when you look around, you can see, using your analogy of colorblindness, you can see colors. And yeah. I can see colors. And there's that thing where, oh, the way I see blue isn't the same way that you see blue, right? But you can see blue. You can feel, you can feel the same emotions, I would think, that I feel or that any, anyone listening could feel. I don't know. I but I do know. I'm telling you you do. Telling you. Well, I don't know how you can say that though. I mean, because I'm not saying I, because you're wrong. I have faith in you. Well, it's not a question of faith in me. You know what I mean? Like it's not it's not that if I couldn't feel those emotions, it would not be because I didn't have enough like good in me or faith in me or I hadn't tried hard enough. Like it would be because those emotions are being generated by a series of sort of chemicals and experiences and the way and, and certain wirings and so forth that are just very different in people. Like my emotional life is not, it clearly does not 
line up with the emotional lives of most right. people I encounter. Right. I am a, a lot of my difficulty in life, and it's not. I wouldn't. I don't characterize it dramatically. I don't think of it as difficulty that is dramatic. I think of it as difficulty that is pragmatic, which is just that when people are describing their feelings and when they're and when they get upset about things like people being late or upset about things like I we were in love and now we're not in love and and I'm ruined and I want to kill myself I from a pragmatic standpoint I do not identify with those experiences and I have been obviously brokenhearted and I've been brokenhearted to the point where I was uh inconsolable yeah but on a day-to-day basis um, or on a yearly basis, like I'm looking for pragmatic solutions to emotional experiences and not looking to fly to fly aloft on the wings of an emotional eagle and, <laughs> and you know, just be like, ah, ah. And, you know, and either be, either be removed from the fires of Mordor on the back of a giant eagle who doesn't appear to care about me or to just ride that eagle like an eagle rider. Like I just kind of want to keep fairly planted and not be destroyed Mm -hmm. because I do feel like emotions have the capacity to destroy. Now, the, their usefulness as a thing to create, uh, as a, as an instrument of creation, like I'm, I like to play there. I like to take emotions and try to use them as tools to, to make, but I'm very conscious of them sort of primarily being the building blocks of, of destruction because people make bad decisions motivated by emotion. And I don't, I think if you took all the decisions in history that were made strictly out of emotion and you put them in two piles, Mm -hmm. good decisions and bad decisions, I think the pile of bad decisions would be a lot, lot higher. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. And so, so I, so basically like emotions come flooding in and I have whether intuitively or by by practice based on my intuition, I just feel like, okay, let's, you know, let's like take a, take another look at these before I make any choices. It's why I don't have any tattoos. It's why I'm not married. It's why a lot of things. And it's not that I'm, I think people listen to this and they think that I'm guarded. And then I'm closed off. I'm not experiencing the full breadth of, of life. My own psychiatrist is a guy who married his college girlfriend. And one of the ways I feel like we do not sync up. I do not feel like we are especially a good doctor patient match is that he clearly believes that finding a life partner is a uh, virtuous goal 
in the process of becoming a full human being. Like he, right? Like that's uh, that's that's like an uh, one of the big goals of being a person is to get paired up with somebody, a long term paired up life life partner. Yeah, and in order to do that, you need to be vulnerable and open, and um, and to recognize the 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 good in people, and and I mean all of the kind of thing, all of the stuff we don't. Right. Like, I don't, I, about, I can tell you, I don't ag- agree with that. I think for a lot of people, that's true. Uh, but I, mean, I don't know that psychiatrist, it's, it's true. And right. that is problematic between us because I am he talking be- about, are you saying he believes it's true for all people or just right for him, him or herself? It's a him, right? Himself. It's a him. He certainly does not, uh, hesitate to suggest it as a solution to my own problems or not suggest it like well why don't we get you a wife but (laughs) but he sees my you can just tell right that he perceives my take to be uh unhealthy and then and i'm i'm perfectly willing to consider that but then when he describes healthy what he's describing is his experience which is you know, meet your partner when you're 22 years old in med school and get married to them and be married to them happily for 40 years. You know what I mean? Like he doesn't, he has not in the process of saying like, well, let's examine your unhealthy experience. And I'm like, well, I wouldn't say it was unhealthy. Right. It's just, it's just individual. And he goes, well, sure. But like, have you ever, and I'm like, have I ever considered marrying my, the, the girl that I knew when I was 22? I have considered it, but I'm 49 now. So I feel like that ship has sailed. Uh, the option of me being your age and having been married that whole time is not an option. Mm-hmm. Uh, so starting now at age 49, do you have some practical? Because uh, <laughs> here we are today and it's, it's yeah. never going to be what he thought it would be, right? Well, and the problem is like, for somebody who married at 22, the idea of actually trying to solve trying to solve the question of how would you create a life that felt like you'd been married since you were 22, but with a person that you only met when you were 49, mm-hmm. who was presumably also not 22, although I'm not right, I'm not discounting the possibility. But I don't think a relationship between me and a 22-year-old would be successful long-term. So this person is also grown up in their 30s or 40s and also has had a lot of life experience. And this person and I are going to like mix our silverware in the silverware drawer and just be like, all right, it's like we've been married forever. You know, like he, he clearly believes that there is some solution to the problem based on an admixture of true love mm-hmm. and practical solutions to day-to-day problems. Do you think that he he feels that it's an it's an when you describe it as a problem, like did you express it to him as something that you th- felt was missing or that you thought was a problem or was it m- more like he's telling you it's a problem that maybe you hadn't realized you had? The thing is I don't sit in the psychologist's office and well, f- first of all, he's a psychiatrist. Right. But second of all, 
I do not think of myself as lonely. So a lot of the time people are trying to solve for loneliness. Mm -hmm. Right. We talked about that in in an episode and I asked you if you ever felt like you were lonely and you said you don't really experience that. And I think for people who do experience it, it's, that's kind of a foreign concept. Like how, how can John not feel that? Or maybe, you know, is it, because I remember when you said it to me, I was like, well, that, that's kind of cool. Like he's like, uh, the, you know, the mountain man, he can go out and, and be on his own and do whatever he wants to do. And, and there's not that feeling of like, Oh, I should be, you know, that this is kind of like, this would be nicer if that special someone was here with me, you know, like you get to, to enjoy anything and everything, but how can you be sure that you don't experience happiness, but you're sure you don't experience loneliness? Well, what I'm saying is I'm pretty sure I don't experience happiness. It's not that I'm saying, I mean, you're, you're, you're telling me that I have the capacity to feel happiness. I'm positive you do. Um, but it seems to me that, that that also suggests that I have the capacity to feel loneliness and that I have the capacity to feel all these other feelings. And I think you do. Yeah. But I'm not, I'm not sure that's true. Like the other night I had an evening of loneliness I lay in bed. I had some stuff I wanted to talk about. And I do this sometimes. You know, I have a lot of names in my phone that I have collected over the years. A big address book. And I'll sometimes open it up and I'll just start flipping through it. Looking for somebody to call. Mm. Because I have something to talk about and I can't talk about it with the normal 15 people that I talk to stuff about, right? Like I have my guy friends that I sit and bullshit with Mm -hmm. and we can talk about our feelings about a kind of discrete set of things. You know, if I start talking about, um, feeling insecure with them or feeling, or if I start telling a story that doesn't, uh, that doesn't feel very good about my feelings or my experience of something, they get uncomfortable. They don't want to talk about that stuff. Right. But we can talk about stuff. We can, you know, talk about, we can talk about stuff enough that we're, we're close friends with one another, but you're just not going to say that is not a group of guys where you sit and talk about your marital problems, right? They're all married. They're all married, but they don't talk about their relationships with each other. And then I've got my, you know, I've got a handful of guy friends that we sit and talk about life and stuff. And we can talk about our, we can talk about things within relationships, but that gets little, little touchy, a little touch and go somewhere out there where you, where you're asking people to really examine what they're, what they're doing, you know, like, we can talk about, oh, yeah, my wife is it's not going so good in this, that, or the other department. But if you say, if you probe too much, you know, that's the, the, the topic gets changed. Yeah, sure. 
and then I have, you know, I have, I have female friends that I can talk to much more candidly about the world of emotion. But my female friends all have agendas with me. Like what? Give other. me an ex- example. Well, it's just in the nature of the human being, right? I mean, there men are. I mean, this is gender determinism, determinism, or whatever. But I mean, anyone who would say there isn't a difference between men and women has never raised a child. Um, women have have the ability to speak much more eloquently and candidly about the the world of the mind and the world of the of the of of like human experience but they also have conspiracies and they have uh plans and in ways that men just don't they just don't my my guy friends compared to my women friends my guy friends are just unsophisticated and they're like happily unsophisticated they just don't want to think about their feelings but thinking about your feelings has side effects and those side effects are that you are that there that there are swirling undercurrents mm-hmm. and overnotes and plots and you know if you put if you put if you put two guys and two girls in a crowded room and the, and each guy and girl was a couple, but they were, they were all in engaged in uh, secret affairs with each other. Okay. Right? They yeah. were, they were sleeping with one another's spouses. My sense is in my own experience that in this crowded room, if they were standing uh, on the other side of the room from one another, there is a very, very good chance that the women would perceive that they would perceive it. They would perceive that infidelity. They would perceive in one another something different. Mm. They would, they would know and the men would be oblivious and that obliviousness on the part of men is like part of how they create so many problems in the world, but also partly how they, they manage to do things. Um, my closest friends have always been women, but it's dangerous there and particularly dangerous to be a man there in a world where your best friends are women because it's not just, you just, I don't have female bros who are like, Hey man, whatever, you know, tell me your fucking story. <laughs> oh, did you bet? Were you banging her? And then she like got all weird. Totally. You know, it's not that at all. There's, <laughs> there's a lot of. There's a lot of stuff swirling around, particularly if you're friends with somebody that you used to date, particularly if you're friends with someone who you might have should have dated, but never did. You transfer it over into friends, but it never got resolved or whatever. A thousand, thousand different tendrils of, of feeling and, and just the energetic, the energetic way that women and their their idea of community and their, the way their minds are. But there are a lot of things I can't talk to my female friends about, especially because of this, the fact that there's, it's never agenda free. 
And then I have female friends who are very different than normal women, right? Who are like on the spectrum, female friends who are on the spectrum, who mm-hmm. are fighting their own culture, you know, who think of themselves as people who don't have a lot of female friends and they're all their friends are boys. And, you know, that's also a trope. There aren't a lot of guys like me who have, a, who, who their best friends are women, but there are a lot of women who consider themselves to have the, all their best friends are men. And I have a lot of those female friends and I can't talk to them about stuff either. You know, like I, there are, so anyway, I had a lonely night is what I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. And who knows whether everything that I just said just infuriated our entire listenership and I'm, they're all mad that I'm normativizing or whatever the fuck it is that everybody's mad about. No, you're talking about your own experiences and I think that's valid. This is my experience. Anyway, I had a lonely night and I looked in my little phone and there was no one to call. And I think there are probably people listening to the show who think of themselves as friends who might text me and say, you can always call me. But the problem is the people that I, the people who are listening to this show who are my friends who would say that there's a reason I didn't call you either because there's just some things you can't talk about with, in my case, sometimes you just can't talk to them about anything. You can't talk about those things with anyone, I guess is what I'm saying. I talk to my mom about a lot of things. But she doesn't, she's not an empathizer. You know what I mean? My mom isn't like, oh, sweetie. If I say like, oh, I felt bad about this. She's like, well, you should have done something differently. Right. Like she's, but, but I'm, but I have confidence in her, right? I don't, I don't distrust her. She doesn't generally have an agenda with me other than that she hopes that I'm happy. But I described this lonely night to my psychiatrist and he said, well, this is, you know, this is what you, um, this is what having a life partner is all about. Right. You would have had, you would have had someone who's on the same page as you, who you could have spoken to about whatever it was or been with when you had felt lonely. That was, that was his take on it. And this, and you could see the excitement in his face. He kind of felt like this was an in. Right. Like he's finally, he's finally cracked through your shell to the, to, to help you identify with the rest of humanity who puts value in having a life partner. Yeah. And I said, you know, like for the occasional night when I have something that I want to talk to and I can't think of anybody to talk to about it. You're suggesting that the solution to that is to be married. Um, yeah, to like to uh, assume upon myself the the stack of like moldy bear skins <laughs> that being married would entail. Well, like, I think what bare- he's do- what he's doing is he's thinking to himself, okay. Do I have I ever felt what John is describing? Uh, and he said either one of two things. He either said yes, I have. What did I do? I spoke to my wife. Or he's mm-hmm. saying no, I haven't. Why? Because my wife was there. That's right. And for me, like the idea that you would tell everything to your wife—that doesn't seem right either. I've had girlfriends. Yeah, I don't tell them. 
uh, on those lonely nights when I'm like, I don't have anybody to talk to, like my girlfriend isn't the, isn't the place that I go with everything. And okay. Well, let me ask you why, why not? Because I think that that right there is kind of the presupposition that's made that at least by your psychiatrist, if not by many people that wouldn't, wouldn't you want someone who you felt you could tell and, and not only that you could tell everything, but that you would want to tell everything to like, have you ever had, have you ever heard in a movie or, or seen someone say, or perhaps felt yourself that, well, until I told this one person, it didn't seem like it really happened. Like this great thing just happened. But until I shared it with that person that I care about, maybe it's a friend, maybe it's your spouse, maybe it's your mom, who, you know, whoever. But have you ever had that? Like until I shared it, it didn't, it didn't feel real. And then once you share it with that person, you kind of feel a degree of closure about it. Have you felt that? Yeah. But again, that's a pretty small gain um, to live under 40 moldy bearskins <laughs> that seems to me to be the majority of like the day to day in and out of maintaining like a like a daily relationship with somebody and I and right it's it's like uh, you know you have to have a fire extinguisher in your house just in case there ever maybe is a fire and hopefully there never will be right but 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 I don't carry a fire extinguisher strapped to my back and another one strapped to my chest every day <laughs> right. on the off chance that I'm going to have a that's G-spire. You, that's marriage to you, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> I have well, no idea. <laughs> let me ask you, well, let me ask you a question. Like when you were feeling lonely, who were you wishing that you could talk to? Would it be like a, a woman or oh, oh, just a, a male friend? Like who was, when you were imagining, if you were, Imagining speaking to somebody in the big, in the whole world, like who, who came to mind first as somebody well, that you the, would want to talk to? The person would be either, um, like a female friend who had, who had a, uh, like, you know, like a fully open sort of connection to her emotional life and her heart and like a, an, a, a knowledge of me and my passage through time and our friendship had survived many hurdles and we were still, um, we were tight still. And I mean, I'm describing a relationship that I have with several people, mm-hmm. but then at the end of all of that, that there was not also still some feeling that, maybe down the road we were fated mm. to be with one another and so everything that that everything that i would need to talk about would be like that sense of us being fated is the thing that would um that would destroy my ability to be like truly confidential with them because of this like this looming thing this this unfulfilled dream and that closeness i have with a handful of people where we've been through it all and where they have the access to all of their feelings 
and we have been through it a million times and and the and the the that sense of fadedness is we're not we're not unconscious of it we've talked about it it's a we're it's not like an elephant in the room either it's just a it's a thing that makes our relationship closer even but there are some moments when it makes me feel like i like i can't be candid rather than makes me feel like I can be more candid. And most of the time it functions as a thing that allows me to be even more candid. But there are just those moments when it is, when that is too close and there isn't a, there isn't enough detachment. Um, and it's, it's rare, you know, this is the thing. I don't feel lonely. I have close friends who can walk through life with me. But do you, can you, can you have the same kind of closeness with uh, a woman that you can have with your friends? In other words, in in a, in a platonic relationship, you seem to be able to get very close to people. Can you get that in, in the romantic relationship as well? Or is there something different? Oh, it's very different. I mean, there's obviously a different kind of closeness, Um, but there's so much danger in a romantic relationship. Is it because then you're, you're concerned how the other person is feeling more? Like if you say, if you said something to me and like, well, Dan didn't like it. So that's all right. Like no big deal. Like he didn't like it. And, but if, if you're like in a romantic relationship, is it that you have to worry about the other person? Romantic relationships are all about plans. Very, 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 very few people are able to be in a romantic relationship that is happening entirely in the present moment. That's a, that's a not, very, very interesting point. I yeah, never thought there, of it in those terms. There's, you know, to be in a couple ship is to be making plans. And my life has been spent in a largely plan free schema. Uh, and that's partly because I don't believe that life is, is made better by planning. Plans just seem to be things that go wrong. And obviously like I have not, um, accomplished maybe as much as I could have, if I'd had a plan, but I've accomplished okay. You know, yeah. I know a lot of people that had really, really, really good plans the whole time that didn't do any better. There are people that had really, really good plans that have done a lot more things and they've been stuck according to their plan. But, you know, my high school girlfriend had a plan from the time she was 13 and she accomplished it and she's still living according to it. She's also almost 50 years old and she's living according to a plan that she made when she was 13. And I don't see, at least from the outside, and I mean, she and I are are still uh, in touch, and that means that we're still close because we've known each other for f- fucking 40 years. Mm-hmm. Um, or not, not quite 40, 35 years. Uh, and as far as I can tell, she hasn't really deviated from the plan. And if you asked her, she would say, no, I've, I'm, I'm – st- I've accomplished the plan that I set for myself at 13 and I continue to accomplish it every day. And it's just like, wow, hot. 
damn, uh, that does not describe me at all. I did not have a plan. I still don't have a plan. And relationships are about plans. So whenever I'm in a, a relationship with somebody, my lack of a plan is immediately a subtle problem. It is the pee under the mattress because I resist being shoehorned into someone else's plan. Right. And I don't resist it passively. I just go, hmm, well, doesn't sound like what I would do in that situation. Can you convince me why that's better than just waiting and seeing what's going to happen? And the answer to that question is always, well, it's better to have a plan. And anybody who thinks it isn't better to have a plan is trying to weasel out of something or is a sneak or is a, is a, or she's shiftless or somehow is failing the test of, because the idea of commitment is another form of describing a plan. And I'm faithful to the people that I love and I love them eternally and I love them truly, I think, but I don't, um, I don't submit to plans. And that is the thing that, I mean, that's this enormous tension between me and especially the women in my life because the guys in my life don't care. They don't need me to have a plan. Right. They don't, uh, they're not, I mean, a lot of them are like, ha, you don't have a plan. And half the time they're like, lucky you. And the other half of the time they're like, "I, I wish I could hang out, but I, you know, I can't because I do have a plan. Uh, I'll see you when I don't, but like our hanging out and our friendship isn't predicated on a plan, either a plan for us or a plan for what we're going to do. You know, like, like I am confident that my group of guy friends and, and by my group of guy friends, I mean, I have 15 different discrete groups of guy friends, but in most cases I will continue to be friends with them as long as the sun is in the sky. Right. right? Sure. You, you and I aren't going to have a falling out of any kind. We'll be friends forever. My Seattle rock friends and I will be friends eternally. I'm not going to screw them over or, I mean, they'll, they'll be friends as long as we continue to just remember to call each other. Um, there isn't a question of, and, and when I use the word betrayal, I don't mean like, like cheating on somebody, but I mean, betraying the, betraying the plan, you know, um, betraying the plan is as bad as cheating because the presumption is that if you're faithful to the person, then you're faithful to the plan. Mm. And if you're unfaithful to the plan, then you must be unfaithful to the person. And I can't ever reconcile that with my nature. And the the relationships that I've had that have been the most successful have been ones where either my partner was pretending that there wasn't a plan. Oh, right. To, to To kind of keep you around or keep you happy, knowing that you don't like plans 
that no i think that those relationships don't work i'm talking about the ones where the person i'm with is pretending to themselves that there's not a plan oh i see right the ones where someone is just trying to like machiavelli me or just like scheme me into something like i don't i don't have a plan uh, I see through that pretty fast and, and that comes crumbling down pretty fast. No, it's the ones who are like, you know what? I don't have a plan either and I don't need a plan. I don't care. Um, those are the ones that succeed for the longest and the, and the danger is just that or, or what causes them to come apart eventually is that we reach a, a, we reach a crossroads where, where it's like, right, can we keep going planlessly here and I say sure and then something you know something happens where they aren't able to do it anymore to be planless um, there are the remarkable few I think who can who can just chart a course that's their own and understand you know, the, because the thing about me is I feel very true. Like I feel very faithful. I'm still here, right? I'm not a, I'm not a flake. I don't go fuck off. I don't, I'm not somebody who's like hip hop this week and grunge next week. Mm -hmm. Like I'm me. I've always been. And every time someone feels like my rootlessness or my plan or rather feels like my planlessness is synonymous with rootlessness. I'm like, how do you figure like I'm as rooted as a, as a person can be. And I'm known, I'm knowable, right? I'm knowable and, and known. I don't have a bunch of secrets. I'm not a serial killer. I never on tour, like I've never shown my penis to somebody who didn't want me to and also <laughs> even the ones who wanted me to I wouldn't do it if you were in a long term relationship with me and begged me to show you my penis I wouldn't probably do it I would be embarrassed uh, because that's embarrassing so I'm um, you know there's no like creep story about me waiting to come out uh, the degree to which I'm like a like a bully is evident right it's just that I'm you can see who I am right I'm not I don't bully people uh, except like in this kind of like broad shouldered accidental um, Penn Gillette kind of way where I just, my voice is just louder than other people's. Right. Um, so, so the idea that I'm under, that I'm not dependable is this lifelong struggle I have. I'm fucking dependable every day. I'm here, you know, I'm like, I'm there for my kid. I'm there for, I pay my bills. I'm like responsible. I just don't look out five years, 10 years, 15 years and have a sense of what that's going to look like five years from now. I just, I don't have, I don't have goals for it. Do you think, think, do you think that to average people that having those plans or those goals and working toward them, is kind of in, integrated into what they think of as being dependable. In other words, yes. that, 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 that because just being, being there, being here every day, they're doing that too. That's the easy part, but having the goal and working toward that, that's the hard part. 
And that without that, that how can we, how can we, well, okay, so John's here today, but we don't have any indication that he will be there tomorrow. And that's what dependable really is. Right. Hypo- hypothetically that dependable isn't I'm here. I'm here today. I've always been here. I'm here. No, because th- I guess what's missing is the assurance that people might want to say, well, you know, like I anticipate that on Thursdays you'll show up and we'll do a show, but right. there have also been Thursdays where on late Wednesday night, the night before there's an Instagram photo of you getting on a plane yeah, right. And, you know, <laughs> and you, and wow, you this, this, like, this New York <laughs> flight is really packed, but I'm glad I was able to fit all of my stuff in just one small Filson bag. And I'm thinking there's probably not a microphone in the Filson bag. And maybe we're not going to be recording. And that hasn't happened a lot. And I've had other podcasters that I've recorded shows with just not show up at all for things. And so is that weird? No. And at the end of the day, yeah, we can make it up. It's like not a big deal. Um, you know, and there are so, people, there are people with plans. There are people who never leave their house that sometimes miss podcasts. Th- it, that's I mean, exactly miss, what I'm saying. I've missed you podcasts miss them all the time. Cause yeah, you go to the doctor like 14 that's times a, a month. Not accurate. But I <laughs> but have, let me, let, let me answer what I'm your, saying is, your earlier question. What, what I'm saying is like, I don't think of you as not being dependable because right. once or twice you were on a plane the night before we were going to record and didn't remember to tell me that doesn't make you not dependable. But right. I think the idea that like John has no plan and like there's at any minute we feel like you could just pop off the face of the planet and like well he's going to be on a sub for a year now that's just that seems like that's within the possibility of things that you could do you could be on a plane to new york or maybe you could be on a submarine for a year and we won't know we won't have any idea we won't have any way to know until we hear that you've already started doing that maybe from somebody else the i think what you're i think what you're describing is very true and and it gets to the heart of how I experience emotion. Okay. And my sense is that people's plans and schedules and schemes and commitments and contracts are all ways that they are managing their emotions, mm. which they don't trust and they don't understand. And their emotions are a source of fear and anxiety and confusion for them. And so they tie themselves to the world and to one another through schedules and plans and commitments and contracts because they don't feel dependable in their soul. And what keeps them, um, what keeps them reliable is their commitments. And a lot of these people who have, contracts and mortgages and and uh and lifelong commitments to people and all this stuff they are also cheaters and liars and fakes mm-hmm. and but they feel like they're doing what they need to do because they are me- they're meeting their commitments they are on schedule and for me like my emotional life as fraught as it is and as many uh as as many demons as i battle i don't 
uh, partly I don't feel like being under contract changes any of that. Mm -hmm. And so like making, in the course of my life, I learned, I learned pretty early that you can sign a contract that says anything, but it, 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 those aren't binding on me if, if my emotional commitment isn't true. Right. So what's the point of even having the contract? Yeah. I'm not scared of, of, uh, like a contract doesn't sit there like a, like a vulture and glare at me. Like, a, you know, it's, uh, and that's not to say if you sign a contract with me, I won't uphold it. I, the, the, the difference is I don't sign a contract unless I intend to uphold it. Um, and I don't need to sign a contract if we have a contract. Like for instance, I don't have a record contract. When I signed my record deal with with Barsook Records, I shook hands with Josh Rosenfeld. And over the course of the 15 years we've been in business together, he has a multitude of times come to me with a written contract and we've sat down over dinner and we've read the contract together, pushed it back and forth. And I've said, well, you know, I would sign that if it weren't for those two extra words in, on, you know, in sentence two subset a and with those there you know i just feel like we need to talk about it and he's like well i can cross those words off and i'm like yeah but i feel like those words are in the spirit of a different animal let's think about it and get back to this and he's like agreed and we've been doing that for 15 years (laughs) and yet we've been in business together and we have had a and we have exchanged an awful lot of money between us and we have had an awful lot of uh, we depend, we have depended on each other and we've been furious, furious at each other. We've felt like the other was screwing, uh, screwing the other over. And yet there was never a question that we were under contract to one another, mm-hmm. you know, and such that if there was something that we, that really needed to change, we would be able to change it because I trust him and he trusts me. And if there, if we had signed a contract and something needed to be changed, we would have to go get a new, new contract. Right. Whereas in the course of our business together, things haven't needed to be changed that much. And what little has, has just changed. Well, the I point, mean, I, I think the point of a contract in general is to help people who don't trust each other or plan focused people who are concerned that the other person's plan can or will change. And they're trying to Mm -hmm. set up some controls around that so that they're saying, I realize you may not want to do this thing forever. So let's, Mm -hmm. you know, let's work out the details so we can kind of keep, keep you doing this thing for at least law, as long as it will make it profitable for me. And that is why I don't do a lot of business with people like that. Like you and I do not have a contract. Merlin and I don't have a contract. I don't really have a contract with my booking agents. Um, and, and, I, and I have the luxury, I guess, of choosing to do business with people. But, the, but I feel like in, within the emotional realm, within the relationship realm, within the like, is John trustworthy 
over the course of five years, over the course of 10 years. I don't feel like I am, I, I don't feel like my emotions are this, this foreign agent. Mm. They're not confusing to me. I don't need to, um, I don't need to build a cage around them. Right. In order to feel about myself that I'm reliable and dependable. I mean, I, t I think I told you when I was running for city council, a sitting council person uh, came over to my truck one day and said, you know, we don't know who you are, what you're going to do. And I said, yeah, you know who I am. I see you all the time. And he's like, no, no, no. I mean, when you're on the city council, we don't have any idea how you're going to vote on things. Right. Because you haven't given us a very clear sense of um, what side you're on. And we don't want someone up there that we don't know what they're going to do. Even if you were against all the things that I'm for, I would rather that than you be whatever you are, just like voting on your voting on your conscience. It's right. just not what we want because all the deals that happen, all of the way government goes is that before there's a vote, we pretty much know how it's going to turn out and we can arrange things and plans can get made and people can sign contracts and it can, you know, we don't want a situation where every time there's a, there's a vote, it's some kind of, you know, five to four and you're always going with the, with the wind. We'd rather it just be five to four every time a certain way. And then we can be the opposition or something, you know? And I was like, well, fuck. I mean, how are you supposed to have flexible government where people are thinking about, about issues in, on their own merits? And he's like, you just can't do that. You can't, it's too crazy because you vote for one thing one way. And then two months later you vote for a thing that basically contradicts that. And this thing is true. And that thing is true, but they contradict one another. And so you have to be, you have to work in blocks. You have to be, he didn't say all this. I was, in, I was, I, I am, I'm giving him the benefit of having thought all this through, but it is true right? that you can't just, you can't be a legislator and just like follow your truth. You have to be aware of the fact that like, yeah, you can follow your truth and then you, you arrive at, at incompatible conclusions because that is actually closer to true than politics. We would like to thank Washington Square Watches. These watches are focused on individuality, creativity, and the motivation to pursue your dreams. You know what? That's what they're all about. They have men's and women's watches. Tons and tons and tons of different designs. They've got these really cool square cases. Of course, they have regular round cases. And they all come on these really gorgeous leather straps that you can check out. You can even get your initials customized, stamped on these straps. And that's for free during the holiday season. So it's a good time to check these things out. They have a slim design with upgraded minimalist details. And they ship in a gift box that has a vegan leather pouch. If you're wondering what makes these things work, they've got high quality Japanese movements inside of them. So you know that they're going to keep great time. 
And like I said, you can go and pick from tons and tons and tons of different options. You're going to find something that you like and it's going to stand out because these watches are really, really unique. So here's what you do. You go to WashingtonSquareWatches.com and use the code ROADWORK and you'll get 30% off your entire order. So again, WashingtonSquareWatches.com and the code ROADWORK will get 30% off your order. We sure do appreciate the support of Washington Square Watches. I feel like it is it is this world of of emotional I don't think fragility is the right world. Emotional um, incomprehensibility that most people feel that makes them feel much more secure if they have an idea of what's coming next. And maybe it's because I have less capacity to feel either sorrow or joy or maybe it's because I have a tremendous capacity to feel sorrow and joy and I just call those things by other names or but I mean if it, but it makes sense it let's be hypothetical and say maybe you don't feel those things or you don't feel them very much that or feel if, them the same way that other people are feeling them because uh, I mean, it, it feels much more like that because other people are like, but, but, but love. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Love. But go ahead. You were about to say. Well, what I was going to say, what I was going to suggest as a possible explanation is if, if in fact you don't feel those things the same way, uh, or another way to say this would be, let me take a step back for a second. Another way to say this would be, I think a lot of people make plans in order to protect themselves from feeling things that they find uncomfortable. This mm-hmm. gets into very much a, a, a Buddhism thing because we kind of, we lump our experiences into three categories, generally speaking, good experiences, bad experiences, and neutral experiences. And we generally want to avoid the bad experiences at all costs. We try to avoid the neutral experiences because those are just boring. And we only want to have the good experiences. And so if we plan, I'm suggesting, if we plan or have a plan, the plan is not, I'm going to go to ACL and have a really horrible time. That's never anyone's plan. The plan is, I'm going to go see ACL and have a great time. Or... I'm going to plan to be with this person forever because this person makes me feel really good. And I think that that good feeling will continue if I'm with this person even more and longer and forever. And so people make these plans that more often than not don't work out. And when they don't work out, they then come back and say, man, I was stupid to make that plan or something went wrong and I don't understand it or I've made a horrible mistake or whatever. But if you don't make any plans, uh, then the, the, the impression or the feeling is that like, well, you made no plans, so how can you ever expect anything good to happen? 
You didn't go after those good experiences. You didn't try to minimize and diminish and push away the bad or neutral experiences. And I think a lot of people are scared of the unknown. They're scared of not having a plan because if they don't have a plan, then what will they do? What will they do tomorrow? If you're not working towards something and it seems like you're not scared of not having a, <clears throat> sorry, you're it, not to say that you're scared of having a plan. I'm saying it doesn't, it seems like you're not scared of not having a plan. And maybe part of that is that I don't, <clears throat> I'm not scared of bad experiences, I guess. Right. And you're, again, you're not afraid it, of that. It may be that I have a different, I'm differently abled in, in, in emotional terms. But if I see us, if I see something coming up that is like, like for instance, if I'm somewhere and it's raining outside and there's a group of people that are all climbing into a car and they're like, get in. And I think about my options, which are get in the car or call a cab or walk. In that situation, I will generally pick walk. I will never call a cab. And I almost never want to get a ride home. And it's not because I don't like being with people. If those people were like, get in, we're going to Spokane, I would jump in. But if it's just like the convenience of a, of a ride home because it's raining, I don't ever choose it. And it's not because I'm dramatic. It's because the, what is it? The hair shirt, the self sufficiency and the, and the in during minor suffering mm-hmm. in terms of a long, wet, cold walk home is important to me. And I see all the time people in that situation paralyzed by the fact that there's no one to give them a ride home. And they're standing outside the club and they are in a state of apoplexy Mm -hmm. because their ride didn't come or there's no room for them in the car or there are no cabs or something, you know? And I know that that this situation is, this is a, uh, this is a specific example. There are a lot of people that can't walk home on their own at night from a club, but it's a, it's not meant to be, uh, ex- an exclusive example. There are hundreds of examples like this that that don't have to do with mobility or the ability as a the ability I have as a white guy to walk home in the middle of the night by myself. But it's an example of me always practicing so that I'm never in a situation where I feel abandoned or feel apoplectic or feel panic at being dependent, not just dependent on somebody, 
but dependent at all, dependent at all. And so I'll walk home in the rain and I'll be wet and it'll make me sick, but I'll, but I'll love it. I love it because it makes me feel free of, of fear and being free of fear is like a top order need for me. And I know like hunger and, and there are these, there are these top level needs that people have. And I think a lot of people have companionship up there and a lot of people have, uh, love or, or, They don't want to be lonely or whatever it is that's up there at their top level needs. And for me, like the fear, the, the, like being free of, of fear, particularly fear of the unpredicted fear of the, um, fear of like random accidents. Like I want to be free of that. And so I practice it all the time, like hurt me and, punish me because I want to be ready. 